I was brought up in Sheffield, not of a high degree. My parents reared me tenderly, they had no child but me. But I, being fond of roving, just where my fancy led, I was bound out apprentice when all my joys were fled. You're listening to Carrie Grover singing Sheffield Apprentice to Ellen Lomax in 1941. It was a song her great-grandmother, Sally Pitts, sang during the mid-1700s. I'm Julie Mainstone Savas, and this is The Carrie Grover Project. Carrie Grover was born in 1879 in rural Nova Scotia and came from a long line of singers. I've collected all of the folk songs and ballads that were handed down for generations within her family. She also passed along a treasure trove of family stories from which I've pieced together a historical narrative. This is the second podcast of the series. It's devoted to Grover's great and great-great-grandparents. The songs you'll hear in this recording are the actual songs these immigrants from Britain and Wales sang, and these are the actual circumstances of their lives in the early days of the developing Nova Scotian province in the late 17 and early 1800s. When Grover's great-great-grandparents, the Hutchinsons, arrived from Scotland sometime in the mid to late 1700s, they were in company with thousands of other immigrants pouring into the province at the same time. The Scottish, English, Irish, German, Dutch, and French arrived with the planters, colonists from America, and the newly freed or escaped slaves. The Hutchinsons settled in Windsor and had at least three children born in the 1780s. Lucy, and her brothers, Jack and Robert. While little is known of Robert, the lives of Lucy and Jack are tightly woven into the family history. In 1796, a young boy named William Long arrived from Ireland to the newly crowned capital of Halifax. He also made his way to Windsor, where he later met and married Lucy Hutchinson. At the turn of the 19th century, Windsor was an established shire town with a courthouse and jail, It was also a bustling center for commerce, shipbuilding, and society in general. There were churches, a school, and even a college, King's College, built by the Anglicans in 1788. But beyond the shore and coastal settlements, the forest loomed. It was a vast, impenetrable wilderness that blanketed much of the interior. Getting through it or around it was greatly impeded by the lack of decent paths and roadways. The early roads expanded upon the interconnecting trails originally laid down by the native Mi'kmaqs. Towns and villages sprang up along these routes. People had no choice but to travel those roads as none other existed. There were few roads at the time and most were deemed deplorable, rutted by carriage wheels and trampled by livestock that rain and weather turned into a bumpy, often muddy mess. The state of the roads dictated where people could go and where they settled. And in the case of the Hutchinsons, it wrote their history. I'm indebted to the work of two Nova Scotian historians. The first is author Joan Dawson and her book, Nova Scotia's Lost Highways. The second is John Wilson, 
a Nova Scotian historian who generously lent his expertise and insight to this project. These are his words, read by my close family friend, Michael O'Meara. Early settlement in Nova Scotia developed along fertile river valleys with ready access to travel by sea. The Great Western Road connecting Halifax, the new capital, with the old capital, Annapolis Royal, through Windsor and the Annapolis Valley, was the only land route through western Nova Scotia. It was merely a trail accessible only to foot and horseback travel, a long and arduous journey fraught with several dangerous river crossings. By the early 1800s, the timber stands along the coast were rapidly being depleted, so the government cast its eye toward the sprawling timber supply from its inland forests, and in an effort to clear and cultivate the wild interior, they began awarding land grants to enterprising citizens who were willing to take on the task. Here's where Carey's great-grandfather, Jack Hutchinson, comes into the picture. He seized the opportunity to be a landowner, and in 1811, at age 23, both he and his brother Robert were each given 150-acre tracts of land right alongside one another. Jack's grant came with the stipulation that he build a place of lodging halfway between the port towns of Chester and Windsor on what is now Highway 14. With this grant also came a free license to sell rum. An inn was sorely needed along that 34-mile stretch that separated those two port towns. The path was no more than a rough cut through dense brush and swamp. Travelers had to pick their way around great boulders, deep holes, and tree roots so menacing that sometimes riders had to dismount their horses to try to free its hooves from the entanglement. It was not uncommon for travelers to lose their way or even lose their lives in winter storms and freezing temperatures. The road, if it could be called that, did not discourage Jack. Listen to what a local newspaper wrote about Jack during this time. One of the earliest settlers was John Hutchinson. He went into what was then wilderness. For several years, in common with other settlers, he had to carry all his provisions home from market on his back. He was over six foot in height, stout in proportion, and uncommonly strong. Once he was attracted by a noise among his sheep, and seeing a large bear about to destroy one, he ran into his house, seized an old Queen Anne musket, and killed the bear with a few blows from the butt end. He was a great moose hunter, and he used to describe graphically his journeyings into the forest. Jack felled trees and cleared his land. He built his inn upon a gentle hill overlooking a lush meadow that provided pasture and hay for his livestock. A stream ran through the property, and on it he built himself a sawmill. He built a barn and stables as well. He named his inn the Halfway House and settled in with his wife, an Englishwoman named Sally Pitts, and their two young daughters. The youngest was Margaret, born 1808. Margaret was Carrie Grover's grandmother. All sorts of people traveled the Windsor-Chester Road. Newly arrived immigrants, soldiers, sailors, native Micmacs, businessmen, and artisans made their way along that lonesome, ragged path. Many stopped to rest their horses or stayed the night at the inn. They drank rum and ale at the fireside where songs were sung and tunes played for an evening's entertainment, a common scene during that era. 
Margaret learned the song, Till It Is Clear Day, from sailors passing their time while waiting for their sailing orders. The tune is played here by Northwest fiddler Randall Bays. Several years ago, I stood on this piece of land, looking for a slice of evidence, a cornerstone or slab that would mark the placement of Jack's Inn. All I found was a quiet, empty field fringed with tall, swaying trees. I had located the plot with the advantage of modern GPS coordinates, paired with my faith in a 200-year-old surveyor's map. The voices of the singers have fallen silent with time. Silvery Tide, a song Jack's mother brought with her from Scotland, would surely have been sung there. There was a fair young creature who lived by the seaside. For beauty, form, and feature, she was called the Floating all along the silvery tide. 
The decade that followed was a prosperous one for Jack and Sally. According to land deeds, Jack Hutchinson began buying up his neighbor's plots of land, and within three years, by 1815, he was the owner of 600 contiguous acres along the eastern side of the Windsor-Chester Road, just north of Card Lake. It seems Jack was feeling more confident than his neighbors in the completion of the construction of a major roadway slated to intersect the Windsor-Chester Road in close proximity to his inn. In 1786, a trail was blazed directly across the province from Annapolis Royal to Halifax. Called the Annapolis Road, its construction would open the interior of the province to settlement, shorten travel distance by one-third, provide a direct route for military forces from the east coast to the west coast of the province, and it would provide a link across the Bay of Fundy to St. John, New Brunswick. Grants were issued to loyalists and veterans of the Napoleonic Wars to properties along the western end of the road as far as Card Lake in the intersection of the Windsor-Chester Road. Settlements were also established along the Halifax end of the road. 
While the connecting portion was used for horseback and foot traffic, it was never open to wagon traffic. Several proposals were made to complete the road, but difficulties in construction through swamps, rivers, and bogs hindered its development. The project was finally abandoned in 1831. Still, Jack must have been hopeful things would work in his favor, and he tarried on at the inn. But in 1820, things took a turn for the worse when Jack's wife, Sally Pitts, suddenly died. In all likelihood, hers is one of the seven unmarked graves that still lie undisturbed on the far edge of the property. Her death divided the family, sending her children to live in separate households. Margaret, who was now 12, was sent to live with relatives in Chester, while Jack remained at the inn. While in Chester, Margaret learned the ballad of Captain Kidd, a popular song at the time as local lore believed Robert Kidd had dropped his treasure in the waters of Mahoney Bay. Here is Carrie singing Captain Kidd for Ellen Lomax in 1941, 120 years after her grandmother, Margaret Hutchinson, first learned it. Oh, my name was Robert Kidd as I sailed, as I sailed. Oh, my name was Robert Kidd as I sailed. My name was Robert Kidd, and God's laws I did forbid, and most wickedly I did as I sailed, as I sailed, and most wickedly I did as I sailed. Oh, my parents taught me well as I sailed, as I sailed. Oh, my parents taught me well as I sailed. Oh, my parents taught me well to shun the gates of hell. But against them I rebelled as I sailed, as I sailed. But against them I rebelled as I sailed. I'd a Bible in my hand as I sailed, as I sailed. I'd a Bible in my hand as I sailed. I'd a Bible in my hand at my father's great command. And I sank it in the sand as I sailed, as I sailed. And I sank it in the sand as I sailed. I murdered William Moore as I sailed, as I sailed. I murdered William Moore as I sailed. I murdered William Moore and left him in his gore. Not many leagues from shore as I sailed, as I sailed. Not many leagues from shore as I sailed. Oh, being cruel still, as I sailed, as I sailed, and being cruel still, as I sailed, and being cruel still, my gunner I did kill, and his precious blood did spill, as I sailed, as I sailed, and his precious blood did spill, as I sailed. My mate took sick and died, as I sailed, as I sailed, Oh, my mate took sick and died as I sailed. My mate took sick and died, he called me to his bedside. Don't for the love of gold lose your soul, lose your soul. Don't for the love of gold lose your soul. I steered from sound to sound as I sailed, as I sailed. I steered from sound to sound as I sailed. I steered from sound to sound, and many ships I found, 
And most of them I burned as I sailed, as I sailed. And most of them I burned as I sailed. I spied three ships from France as I sailed, as I sailed. I spied three ships from France as I sailed. I spied three ships from France, and on them I did advance, and took them all by chance as I sailed, as I sailed, and took them all by chance as I sailed. I spied three ships from Spain as I sailed, as I sailed, I spied three ships from Spain as I sailed. I spied three ships from Spain, I fired on them amain, till most of them were slain as I sailed, as I sailed, till most of them were slain as I sailed. I had ninety bars of gold as I sailed, as I sailed, I had ninety bars of gold as I sailed. I had ninety bars of gold and dollars manifold, with riches uncontrolled as I sailed, as I sailed, with riches uncontrolled as I sailed. Then fourteen ships I saw as I sailed, as I sailed, then fourteen ships I saw as I sailed, then fourteen ships I saw, and brave men they all were, and they were too much for me as I sailed, as I sailed, and they were too much for me as I sailed. At Newgate I am cast, I must die, I must die. To Newgate I am cast, I must die. To Newgate I am cast with a sad and heavy heart. To receive my just desert, I must die, I must die. To receive my just desert, I must die. Take warning now by me, I must die, I must die. Take warning now by me, I must die. Take warning now by me, and shun bad company. Lest you come to hell with me, I must die, I must die. Lest you come to hell with me, I must die. Come gather young and old, see me die, see me die. Come gather young and old, see me die. Come gather young and old, you were welcome to my gold. For by it I've lost my soul, see me die, see me die. For by it I've lost my soul, see me die. Margaret didn't stay long in Chester. Among the family stories is a ghost story. And while it doesn't specifically name Jack, it has striking parallels to his and Margaret's situation. In the story, a man has a recurring dream in which the ghost of his dead wife appears distraught at the foot of his bed. She is insistent he go and get their daughter and bring her back home. Jack does go to Chester and comes home with a melancholy Margaret and she is the only child of Jack and Sally's who returns to the inn. Soon Jack takes a new wife, and in short order, Margaret has two new stepsisters. In 1826, when Margaret was 16 years old, her father's sister, her Aunt Lucy Hutchinson, and Lucy's Irish husband, William Long, took out a mortgage on 200 acres of land just a stone's throw from the inn, and Margaret becomes reacquainted with her nine cousins— eight of whom are female. The lone male is named Joseph, 
And although they are first cousins, a romance quickly sparks between Margaret and Joseph. There are many references to Joseph's singing in Carey's writings. He would have been very familiar with the Irish ballads and political songs from his father. He was forbidden to sing one in particular. It was about a mouse whom the king had sent out to spy on the Catholics. Here to tell the story is Anson Grover, Carey's great-grandson, and the great-great-grandson of Joseph and Margaret. My great-great-great-grandfather, Joseph Long, knew many songs, and a story was told about his young days while his father was still alive. His father was William Long, who was Catholic, although he married a Protestant, and the children were all brought up Protestant. As an old man, William was lame and could only hobble around with a cane. Some young people came in the evening, and as they were in the kitchen with the door shut, they didn't think they could possibly disturb him. The young people were very anxious for Joseph to sing a faction song. Joseph knew it would displease his father and didn't want to sing it, but they all thought his father couldn't hear it, so Joseph allowed himself to be persuaded. The old-fashioned chairs were handmade, good and strong, and a man who was singing a song almost invariably tilted his chair back against the wall and closed his eyes. Joseph had tilted his chair against the wall near an open window, which they all had forgotten about. His father heard him, crept as softly as possible through the front door and around the house to the open kitchen window. Here he braced himself, and before anyone realized that he was there, he reached through the window with his cane and hit his son over the head. As the story was always told, he laid his head open and he carried that scar to his grave. Whether or not Margaret herself was there to witness the blow to his head, she did pass on the story. Here to sing that song, entitled What News from Ireland, Brave Mouse, is Pacific Northwest singer Steve Amston. What news, what news from Ireland, brave mouse come tell to me. The strange twist to this story is that a few years later, Joseph and his father were threshing grain with a flail, a tool used to separate grains from their husks. Father and son got too close to one another in the process, and Joseph accidentally struck his father on the head with the flail, and his father died as a result of that injury. In 1828, Joseph Long and Margaret married, 
and in doing so combined their family repertoires, passing them along to the next generation. Many of the songs sung by the Hutchinsons and the Longs during this time period eventually fell upon Carrie Grover's ears and were published in her songbook, A Heritage of Songs, more than 100 years later. The stories follow Joseph and Margaret, who eventually relocated to the Black River region. There on the shores of Sunken Lake, they built their home and produced 11 children. Carrie's mother, Eliza, was one among them. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Carrie Grover Project. To learn more about today's story, go to www.carriegroverproject.com. The next episode takes us to Sunken Lake, the setting for Grover's young life. Tune in to hear Joan Baez and Paul Brady performing songs straight out of Grover's songbook.